Let me tell y'all a little something about how things worked when I was coming up. Now, if my mama and her friends or some of our family members were all talking, which we call having a grown folks conversation, then as a child, you knew you had two choices. You stayed extremely quiet and didn't so much as try to blink too loudly or you left the room. And most times when you left the room, you left because an adult, in this case, my mama, would tell you that it was time for you to leave the room because the conversation they were having was not appropriate to have in front of children. Or they just didn't want your nosy ass around because kids have a habit of repeating what adults say, usually at the wrong time. See, there was a respect that was automatically granted to an adult. You didn't jump in their conversations. You basically didn't do anything that indicated you and that adult were on the same level. Now, I realize with what I'm about to say, I run the risk of sounding like old woman yelling at cloud, but I'll take that risk. So our word of the week is respect. Last weekend, NFL quarterback Cam Newton, a former league MVP who spent this last season with the New England Patriots, was at a football tournament for high school athletes. Cam's foundation sponsors several teams in this tournament. So it's not only an opportunity for young athletes to showcase themselves, but it gives them a chance to interact with someone like Cam Newton. Unfortunately, not everybody at the camp had the maturity to take advantage of being in the presence of a former NFL MVP. One young man, I think his name is either Seth or just Seth Owens, because it's spelled J-S-E-T-H. He treated his interaction with Cam Newton like a Twitter troll come to life. Take a listen. You're free agent. I'm rich. You're free agent. I'm rich. You're about to be poor. I'm rich. You're about to be poor. I'm rich. You're about to be poor. I'm rich. You're free agent. 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 Where's your daddy? Let me talk to your dad. Let me talk to your dad. You're a free agent. Where's your dad? You're a free agent. Talk to your dad. You're a free agent. You ask. Talk to your dad. Let me talk to your dad. Where's your dad? Where's your pop? So the person calling Cam Newton washed is Owens. And that's Cam repeating that he's rich, which is facts only because so far Cam Newton has made about 130 million in salary since coming into the NFL with endorsements probably closer to 150 total. Now this video quickly went viral and on his own Instagram account, Cam posted another portion of this interaction that he had with this youngster. Take a listen. No, nah, no, nah, ain't no disrespect. You know, if you want some attention, I'm gonna give you some attention. The right way, bro. The right way. When do y'all play? What was y'all record today then? One and two. No, two and two and one. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> no, I, I wasn't able to see because y'all was two. Cameras on me. All right, bro. What did he do, man? Does he play? He got speed. <laughs> he got speed. No, he's playing. He's yeah, speed. Yeah. Oh, he's going to see. Huh? Nah, you ain't, don't act shy. You nah, bro. Don't act shy. I'm going right I'm going to see. I can see today. You going to watch YouTube. Why you watch YouTube? I know you do. You can't watch that your crotch, <laughs> Now, notice my man was all big, bad, and bold when he was trying to come at Cam. But he got mighty quiet when Cam asked him about his stats and what kind of player he was. The way he was clowning Cam, you would have thought he was Jerry Rice or Randy Moss. This entire dynamic generated so much conversation on social media. And there were people that tried to accuse old fogies like me of taking this interaction too seriously because I essentially tweeted that this young man is fortunate. This was just a relatively harmless back and forth because where I'm from in the era I grew up in, you talk to a grown man like that, you might get collared the fuck up. Real talk. Ask any man what happened to him when he got to that point in his young adult life where he thought it was a good idea to try his father or some other grown man. Those stories never end pretty. Trust me. My problem with this is that unfortunately, young people in general, but especially this generation, have been fooled into thinking they can say anything to anyone without any consequences. Social media got some of these young folks confused. And so they think that life is just one big Instagram or Twitter account. What's interesting is that the person who first brought this interaction to life posted it with the caption, Cam Newton got a little triggered, and then they used the side eye emoji. 
Now that leads me to believe that the person who posted it probably thought this was about to be an awesome viral moment for the young man who was trash talking Cam Newton. He probably assumed that Cam would be the one who was going to get clowned. But plot twist, the person who looked like an idiot is this young man who thought it was a good idea to disrespect a man who has accomplished way more than he ever has and probably ever will. If we're being honest, this is no disrespect to that young man. And I'm talking about the arena of football here. But I don't think this young man understands just how hard it is to make it to the NFL. You honestly have a better chance of being struck by lightning than becoming a professional football player. Seriously. And not only did Cam, who won the Heisman and National Championship in college, not only did he do that, he went on to win an MVP during the era where his peers are Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, to name a few. This, however, is a teachable moment. Young people, don't be the kind of person who never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. This young man wants to be a professional football player. So instead of asking Cam Newton about how he should prepare, the kinds of things Cam Newton was doing at his age to better himself, or asking him about just generally the craft of being a football player, which is something that 99.9% of young people won't get to do, he thought it was cooler to heckle Cam Newton. I wouldn't necessarily say this is germane to this generation, but sometimes when you're young, You'd rather look cool and standoffish than look curious, interested, caring, or passionate. The thing to do when you're a teenager, and I remember this quite well, is to look as disinterested as possible. And all that fake posturing does is cost you in the end. The internet has been pretty hard on this young man, but we have to remember he is still a kid. We know he doesn't know everything, so we should give him every opportunity to learn from all of this. He doesn't need to be canceled. He just needs to learn to do better. Now, I like the fact that he apologized to Cam on social media. If he's smart, he'll figure out a way to maintain that relationship with Cam because something tells me Cam might be receptive to that. Now, imagine what a great full circle story that would be. And that's our word of the week. Respect. My guest today, I hope no young person and really no person, period, ever comes at her disrespectfully because they seriously might get a two-piece, a biscuit, large drink, and a side of red beans and rice. She calls herself the GWOTE, which stands for greatest woman of all time. She is a three-division world champ who is 10-0 as a professional boxer with two knockouts also under her belt. Before she turned professional, she won a pair of gold medals with her first coming at the 2012 Olympic Games when she was just 17 years old. In fact, she is the first American boxer in history to win consecutive gold medals. As an amateur, she was an astounding 77 and 1. On March 5th, she has a bout with Marie Eve DeCare, which will be the first women's pay per view event in the United States in 20 years. Now, she'll talk about that fight in a moment, as well as her decision to begin an MMA career. Also, Programming note, coming up later in the pod, I am going to absolutely roast Texas Senator Ted Cruz and fucking I'm bothered. But for now, coming up next, Flint's finest, Clarissa Shields. So, Clarissa, you got a huge fight coming up um, March 5th. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marie Eve DeCare uh, for the Junior Middleweight Championship. Um, how has this pandemic impacted your training? Um, well, this pandemic has been about a year, right? So, mm-hmm. for the first few months, yeah, I had kind of bloomed up. I got to 100, 195 pounds. Now I'm back down to 168 been down to 168 for the past three, four months. And, um, I mean, it just kind of made me actually train harder to be honest. So like it was so many opportunities that were missed because of coronavirus. And then with, you know, boxing being sexist also, you know, there's a lot of opportunities that I just wasn't given. So I stayed in the gym, I stayed training, I stayed ready, just waiting on the perfect opportunity to when I could have a fight. So it didn't really affect me a whole lot, but it was, I guess it was a great rest time because this year is supposed to be very explosive for myself. 
Yeah. Um, but in that, in, you know, in that downtime, I'm sure like a lot of people you were dealing with a, a lot. Did you find was it harder or easier for you to stay focused during that time? I would say it was it was it was harder because in boxing, especially for myself, I always like to look forward to something and I didn't really have much um, to look forward to. It was like one minute I had a boxing match and the next minute it was canceled. Or one minute, you know, we were talking with this network about having a fight. Then they were saying, hey, we're going to put this guy on instead of you. So, you know, it was discouraging at times, but I just always just kept saying, okay, this must be God setting me up for something bigger than, which I didn't know what bigger was until March 5th came along. (laughs) Well, you said something um, a moment ago about boxing being sexist. This is something that you've been very vocal about in terms of letting people know what this looks like in boxing for women um across the board i'm sure you've noticed this that when you're a female athlete um there is always a constant fight for your respect i mean it's uh, my belief why you see a lot of female athletes that tend to make the best activists that tend to lead the way when it comes to social justice causes because they're used to constantly fighting for their respect in your world in the boxing world what does the fight for equality look like for you I mean, like the fight for equality is just the fight for everything. The fight for equal pay, right, is on the top of the list. The fight for 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 equal TV time, for equal opportunity, and just the fight for equality, period, to just fight the same time as the men. Like, to, to go in the ring and have a world championship fight and fight three minutes for 12 rounds. And it's like, they have every reason in the world to why women can't do it versus another woman. And it's like, what makes you guys think that we can't get our bodies in shape to do 12, three minute rounds. And we already box. Like I, like I spar against men and I spar 12, three minute rounds. I spar three minute rounds, but I only have to get ready for a 10, for a 10 round fight in only two minutes. But it's like, what is the extra minute really going to do to us? And it's like, and it's just more of like, we didn't, we didn't ask you guys to protect us. If we want to go out there and fight 12, three-minute rounds, y'all should just make a sign a, sign a consent form and move on with it. We don't need you guys to say, oh, we're doing this because we are protecting you guys. Boxing is dangerous whether you guys are protecting us or not. And we are and, and we already signed up for, for a dangerous sport. So just go ahead and pay us our money equally. Give us the equal fight time, and equal opportunity. And then we and we can all live happily, happily ever after. But they just want to give us all these excuses to why women are not as good as men. And it's like it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So I know you're a big fan of Serena Williams. And what you said reminds me of the fight that her and Venus had to fight to get equal prize money in Wimbledon. And the rationale was very similar. It was men play more sets. So that's why they should get paid more, even though we all know that when it comes to American tennis, the Williams sisters have pretty much been covering, have been carrying American tennis for like 20 years, at least. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They are the Mm -hmm. superstars of this. Um, But as you continue, um, you know, to fight and to be vocal about um, how you're being held back from an economic standpoint, are you ever concerned that uh, being so vocal about this and fighting for this may cost you some opportunities? Yeah, but also, too, I feel like God will set up something to where um, I will have bigger opportunities. And it, and and from the way it's looking, me being as vocal as I've been has gotten me 350000 for a purse. You know, me bringing this stuff to their attention has actually gotten me further than me just kind of sitting back and kind of letting them give me whatever they give me and be like, oh, yeah, I just need to accept it because... I'm making more than the next girl or, or I'm making more than my counterparts. It's like 350 K is a lot, but it's 350 K a lot compared to a man who's making 36 million a fight. Mm. And, and we have, and I have more accomplishments and I, and, and just the fighter who I want to compare myself to is Canelo Alvarez. And yeah, people are going to go on the uproar about this, but Canelo Alvarez doesn't have not even one Olympic gold medal. I have two. Right. So now we go to the professional leagues. I'm a three-time division world champion in 10 fights. Canelo just became a four-time division world champion. And I believe he's, I don't know, 46 or maybe 42 and 0. And it's like, I'm doing everything faster than him. I'm taking the risk and still 
I have to yell and tell people all the time, equal rights, equal pay, equal TV time, equal opportunity. You're both putting yourself at risk, right? You get you get a concussion just like he can, right? Something bad can happen in the ring just like him, right? So Exactly. And and I and I fought against girls who are 24 and no 11 knockouts. And I only have 10 fights right now. So I'm fighting against these girls when I'm eight and no. I fought a girl that was 16 and 0 with nine knockouts when I was four and 0 to to become a world champion. And this is me putting myself at risk. And it's still just like if their reason for not paying us is as as equal to the men is because we don't fight the same time as the men. Okay, well, we've been vocal about wanting to fight 12 three-minute rounds for a very long time. If that's the reason why we don't get paid the same, that's the main thing that needs to be changed then. Have you ever received uh, any reasonable explanation for why that is? I mean, are they are they telling you that they're doing this for safety? Like, what's the rationale between having women fight less time and less rounds? One of the organizations, um, the WBC, who I'm very, very cool with, I love Mauricio Suleiman, um, they said that they had a test in 1990-ish where they had women tested some kind of test I don't know if it was verbal or whatever. I don't know. But they say that that's where they decided that it should be 10 rounds for two minutes, that it was better for our safety. And then he said something about our our necks being weaker than men's and uh, it's easier for us to get concussions. And I'm like, all that sounds very great. I understand all of that. But where is the scientific proof? And also men's necks, our necks and they're going against other men. We are women going against women. So if you want to say, okay, let's say if our necks aren't as strong as the men and, and our necks are, are weaker. Okay. Well, it's two weak necks versus two weak necks. So it, let's just have weak necks go 12, three minute rounds. Like that's what we signed up for. You know what I mean? Like, but he said that there were, that there was proof and it was paperwork and no one has ever seen it. I want to get into your journey, which I, I think is um, really compelling, very inspiring, so much so that it was a documentary about it. And also, I believe, a movie, right? They're doing a movie on your life, correct? Yeah, a, a movie with uh, Universal Studios. Okay. Do you know who's playing you yet? Yes, Ryan Destiny. Ryan Destiny. That's right, from uh, Detroit, right? Yep. And then Ice Cube is playing my boxing coach. <laughs> so how much did you have any input into who got to play you? I threw them some ideas of people, but I, I I like to let people do their job. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> my job is to box and, you know, kick ass. And I don't want nobody who doesn't box trying to tell me how to box. So I just told them like who I, who I thought should play me. And I was, and, and I'm a huge fan of knife of not Williams. And I kind of think me, I look alike. She got like that, that mean side to her. So I thought maybe it should have been her, but um, they ended up picking Ryan destiny. But, but a night piece did get the script and she did get to, to I think, uh, talk with them or something like that. But she but they ended up picking Ryan Destiny. So how does that feel to know that one day you're going to, you know, in theaters, everybody's going to see what is, is your life? Does that feel kind of weird? Uh, no, I'm always in front of the cameras. People always want to know what I'm doing. No, like after having my actual documentary T-Rex and being followed by like a camera crew for two, two to three years of my life. Like, I, I would rather somebody else play me than, <laughs> than, you know, me be hooked up to a mic and have a camera in my face in my in my real life. Like, if they were asking me to do another documentary, my first answer would be no. It would have to do, I like, like, they would have to say something to, like, really convince me, like, yeah. Like, okay. But right now, if they were the first ask, my first answer would be nope, I don't want to do it. Because it was just like, I was with them every day. And they went to school with me. They were with me when I had arguments with my with my boyfriend at the time. Like they were just there all the time. And it was like, I don't have any kind of privacy. And when you get used to wearing a mic, sometimes you forget you have it on. So, you know, you just talking like, oh, I'm so glad that they went home and they took the camera in my face. And you like, oh, got the mic on. <laughs> Yeah, the mic is always high. That's a, a, a rule that we have definitely in, in, in television. Um, but yeah, before getting into your journey, um, tell me about the first time that you felt like you were famous. Mm, 
you wouldn't believe this, but growing up in my gym, I've always been the only girl at my gym. And it was times when we had girls come and go. But when I first signed up, it was about like 20 guys. And I was a little girl in the gym. I was 11 years old. And the first time I sparred, I was 11 years old, maybe 11 years old and a half. And um, every time I've ever sparred, anytime I've ever gotten a ring and boxed, people have always surrounded the ring to watch me in awe from the time I ever got into the ring. I don't know if it was because I was a girl and I was just mean, I know how to fight. Or if my or if it was just my skills, but I've always kind of been like a superstar in my in my own world and in my own head. And then all of a sudden the cameras come around. I always know what to say, how to conduct myself. Like I don't get nervous. People like to say, hey, we're just gonna be a be a fly on the wall. Do you mind? I'm like, I don't mind because I'm used to cameras, right? So to actually I mean, I feel like I've always been famous, but I get I guess the first time when it really, really, really hit me, I can say after I I became a three-time division world champ and it was in and, and it was some fights. And it was some fights in Vegas, actually. It was Deontay Wilder Tyson Fury too. And um I'm actually gonna rewind to Tyson Fury one, because I was there both. But Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder won. Um Showtime that gave me a ticket to the fight. And it was like one row from the floor. So I could see the floor. The floor is right there, but I'm not on the floor. I'm like with the with the regular crowd, right? This is the one in LA, and, uh, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was at that I fight too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. Got you. So I'm I'm sitting there watching the fight and I must have like made like a video, like, hey, I'm at the Deontay Water fight or blah, you know, team bomb squad. And I'm just sitting there and I took a video. And from me taking this video on my phone, on my Snap story or on my Instagram story, fans started finding me and asking me, could I take pictures? So I'm thinking it's okay the first 10 people. All right, cool. But then it was 20 people. Then it was 30 and it was 40. And then all you know, all night I was taking pictures. And as much as I love my fans, but I love to watch the boxing matches, the undercard, the co-main, the main event, I love to watch it, but it was just like, from me making that post, all those, all my fans came and found me. They wanted pictures. They were talking to me and they were really disrupting me watching the fight, to be honest. But I had to write Showtime a note and say, hey, next time you guys um, want to invite me to a fight and everything, if if I'm not, if I'm not on the floor, I would like to sit at, I, I can watch the fight from home. <laughs> or you know what? Make them put you in a, in a suite. How about that? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I was just like, it was just like, like it was too overwhelming for me. Like I didn't have any security guards, right? And it was like I just took so many pictures throughout the night. So now we fast forward, Deontay Wilder too. Um, and I and I get their fight week. The fans are literally chasing me through the MGM Grand. Like that's when I knew. Like all right, Stardom has went up the roof. You need at least one security guard because these fans, they can get crazy. Have you had a like a crazy or a weird fan encounter? I've been proposed to on the on the strip in Vegas at least five times. And one guy actually had a ring. The other four didn't. But I just was like, what makes you want to propose to me? I just always laugh like I'm, I'm I gotta go. It's too much. <laughs> I just walk off, but that's probably, I would like call like a weird encounter, like a guy proposing to me who I don't know who's a fan. And we take a picture and after he like, Tim, I'm just so in love with you. I'm like, no, you're not. You don't know me. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> well, I imagine, because um, I don't think people look at it from this perspective because we're always hearing the narrative for male athletes and all the attention that they receive from you know, female fans or female admirers being as famous as you are, and particularly the profession that you're in, what kind of mm -hmm. challenges does that pose for you in terms of relationships and dating? <laughs> dating and relationships? Um, well, I have a boyfriend now. We've been together for seven months, but I will say that people first impression of me because of my profession is that I'm gay. That's their first, the first impression, you know, and, um, I've always had a boyfriend throughout my entire career. I was with one boyfriend for four years, another one for three. My boyfriend now has been together seven months. 
you know, I've always had a boyfriend, you know, so it's like, I don't get why I, why people still think that I'm potentially gay, which I don't really have a problem with them thinking that. There's nothing wrong with being gay. It is what it is. But um, that's something that I get all the time. Or they just get that I'm super, like, that I'm super serious. And when I'm not, I'm, like, so chill. Everybody know, like, as long as you don't disrespect me, I won't disrespect you. And that's anywhere. That's, that, that's on social media. That's in person. That's to a fan or or to a troll. You don't disrespect me. I won't disrespect you because I'm not a disrespectful person. I think that people think that boxers are like so just mean and err. And it's like, we're some of the softest and nicest human beings there are really. We're not like super mean as people paint us out to be. We're, we're actually very, very nice and we're very humble and we come from humble beginnings. But I don't get that from people. People say, oh, you know, you like you trash talk. You tough, you probably beat your boyfriends up and they just say all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, no, I don't do no 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 domestic violence. It's <laughs> not me. <laughs> well, is it um difficult? Um, or I imagine like a woman in your position, because you do get a lot of attention, then you need to be with somebody who's really secure in who they are. Um yeah. Yeah. I mean, was it difficult to like kind of find somebody like that that could handle all the wattage that you're going to bring to the relationship. Yeah, but that's still something that, that I worry about, though, because I'm used to cameras and I'm used to being judged and I'm used to people always kind of saying things about me. But in my relationship, like if I can use, for example, now, he don't really like a lot of attention. Like he sometimes he's OK with it, but he's not used to it all the time. And I think that even like for my best friends, when we go out to eat, they're like, you know, we would like to come out to eat with you, have a good time, you know, talk and laugh without you having to get up every, you know, two minutes to take a picture. And I tell them all the time, like, it kind of just come with the territory, you know, like a fan who I'm taking a picture with can be somebody who possibly buy my pay-per-view fight, you know? So I can't be all like, uh, I'm not taking no pictures. And it's like, it takes two seconds. It just got to know who you're with. And I try to explain to my boyfriend now I'm with, like, look, this fight coming up, I want you to know people are going to get weird. And he was like, they already getting weird. They asked me for tickets. Da, da, da. I ain't got no tickets. I'm like, I know. I know. But I'm telling you, like, just kind of don't get overwhelmed because your phone about to start blowing up. You're going to get a whole bunch of text messages. People going to reach out to you, haven't reached out to you in years. Like, people going to come to the gym, be looking for me. Like, it's going to get overwhelming. And I had to tell him, like, you know, just, like, be normal and don't really let it, like, freak you out, you know. But the guy I'm with is super confident, though. He's super confident in who he is. He's a business owner. Uh, he's a he's an entrepreneur. He's a gym owner. He do so. He and so much stuff. So he's not, like, insecure about money or anything like that. Only thing he always says, like, I got to make sure he, like, he practices, uh, kickboxing and also boxing he like i gotta make sure i can handle myself because you be in a room with a bunch of killers <laughs> you know like dudes who fight so he's like he want to be ready or whatever so stuff like that but he hasn't even seen fight week yet like fight week is the week where you're like whoa this is too much even 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 i think this is too much so i know he's gonna feel like that so um and i'm, I'm basing this off uh interview that you <laughs> you did I'm wondering if you've had this conversation with him. So you said um, that you don't, you abstain from sex six weeks out of a fight. Absolutely. <laughs> Have you had this conversation with him and how did he respond if you did? <laughs> so, 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 so strange, right? I've had a few fights booked and a, and a, and a lot of fights canceled, right? And um, the fight that was almost close to being booked and we and we had it locked in, I had told him, I said, we need to have a serious talk and I ain't trying to, you know, freak you out or nothing. He just like, well, I'm like, well, I have this rule that I don't that, that I don't have sex for four to six weeks to the fight. And he just looked at me and was like, OK, so is that a rule like like like, like that's an ongoing rule. And I'm like, yes, it's present. It's now. Yes. And he just was like, well, I guess we have to get it all in, be, you know, <laughs> before you start camp, you know, and uh, he was like, but I mean, as long as it's best for you, I'm like, yeah, like having that built up 
whatever it is that you have without sex. Tension. It's what I need. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's basically what I need. Like, I don't want to go, like, you know, sex makes me feel like, oh, lovey-dovey and, oh, I love you, you know? And it's like, I don't want to feel like that getting in the ring with like a pit bull. Like, let's say if a dog is chasing you, you want to be able to, to go, right? And it's like, for me, me getting inside the ring with a girl and she want to, you know, she want to knock me out. I don't want to be relaxed. I want to be urgent. I want to be ready. And I want my legs to know like, hey, we got some strength. We got some power. Let's use it for the fight. You know, so I just kind of let that be known. But it wasn't it wasn't too bad of a conversation. But was I worried about it? I'm always worried about it. <laughs> always about the conversation. <laughs> well, it's uh, I mean, I've I've heard of male athletes doing that. The the. I guess the the narrative was that it made the legs weak, right? So I was when I read that you said the same thing, I was like, what would a woman be worried about in this situation? I'm not really sure. But I get it. You want to be in 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 killer mode. You want to yeah. have an edge about what you're doing. So I, I get that for sure. Yeah, but 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 also too coming, you know, it, it makes you be relaxed. You don't need to be relaxed when, especially when you're working out and then you're trying to fight like there, there, there's no need to be relaxed in there. This is urgent. This is serious. And it does affect girls' legs too. Okay. So, cause at first I had tested it out and I, and I fought four days. I had, well, I, I did it four days before a fight. And I, and I will tell you what, that, that last round, I've never laid on a rope so much in a, in a fight. Like I couldn't push this girl off me. She was on me. I'm like, where is my strength? And the only thing I kept thinking about was, my dumb butt had <laughs> sex four days ago. <laughs> well, you just ensured, uh, you know, Clarissa, you just ensured a lot of women may not get into fighting now. So <laughs> you just talked them smooth out of it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> sacrifices. Yes, you you're sacrifice right. to be great. You do. Um, and you've made a lot throughout the course of your life. And I want you to talk about those. But first, going to take a very quick break and we'll be uh, back with more from the champ, Clarissa Shields. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, uh, Clarissa, I, I saw, of course, that um, you will be transitioning into uh, MMA. Um, yeah. From a training standpoint, just talk about how you've prepared yourself for that because I saw some uh, video of you um, sparring with Cyborg. So uh, how do you make this transition when you've been, you know, using your hands and then suddenly your feet are in play? <laughs> um, well, first, it, it, it all comes with signing the contract. That's what makes it real, right? You know, you actually have a certain amount of time to get ready for your first May fight. So um, that was my biggest step there. But also to having a, having a plan in play. Like I... I train at Jackson Wing Gym in Albuquerque, New Mexico with some of the best coaches and some of the best people in the world. Like we have Johnny Bones at my gym, Holly Holm. We have Coach uh, Coach Greg Jackson, Coach Michael Winklejohn, um, and Coach Robert Tusa. And Tusa is my jiu-jitsu coach. And I will tell you what, making the transition was scary at first because it was like I didn't know where to start. And all I want to do is strengthen things that I'm that I'm weak at. Right. So as soon as I got to the gym and I was walking to the octagon, I just ended up I, I thought I thought it in my head, but I said it out loud. And I said, Jesus, what am I doing? Why am I here? And then one of the coaches in front of me saw me. He said, Clarissa, is gonna be okay. And I was like, What are you talking about? He was like, You just said, Jesus, why are you here? And I was like, Oh like I'm like so like I'm like so out of it that I'm talking out loud and I'm thinking it in my head and it just came out so um they we all got in the ring collectively and they said so what have you worked on and what do you want to work on like what do you know and I said I don't know nothing about being on the ground 
Never been there. Never had a street fight there. I don't know. Don't know nothing about it. And they said, so is that so is that something you're scared of? I was like, I'm terrified. Just having to be brute honest. Like I'm terrified. I don't even know how to be like calm about this. Like I've been having anxiety because I can't sleep because all because all I'm thinking about is me being in there whooping a the girl's ass and then she tackled me and we on the ground and I don't know what to do. And they said, Okay. So from there, jujitsu and wrestling was my main thing that I did every day. And then we had to mix in the kickboxing. And first my and first my kicks were okay, but they showed me how to kick. And now my kicks are super powerful, faster. And I and I was training three, four times a day. I spent two weeks in uh in a camp and then I went again for about two to three weeks again. And uh all I did was focus strictly on MMA training. And I've improved a lot. I know how to get up off the cage, I know how to what to do when I'm on my back. And it's just some days where like, hey, we starting you off on your back, lay down. And at first, of course, first training was like, this is so uncomfortable. I don't want to be down here. I don't want to be here. But they made it to where it's like, look, it's okay. You know, breathe it out. You, you don't know what to do down here, but that's why we're down here to teach you. But it's just something that I wasn't used to. But it's all about strength. It's all about technique, just like boxing. Physically, uh and this is just to my completely untrained eye, uh, MMA seems a lot more violent. How can you adjust to that level of violence compared to what you're used to seeing in, in, in boxing? Because like in MMA, as you know, like they just keep punching, they elbowing you, they doing a whole bunch of stuff. How do you adjust to that? Well, I'm a violent person, Jamil. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, right? you know, but I just, fighting is fighting, you know, we and we got to go, we got to go out here and see who got heart and who don't got to go out here and see, you know, we got four ounce gloves on. So I punch fast as ever with 10 ounce gloves. Imagine how fast I'm going to be in four ounces. And also too, I'm, I'm, I'm learning everything that these girls are learning. So they want to wrestle. I'm learning how to wrestle. They, they know jujitsu moves. Okay. I'm learning jujitsu moves. They know how to kick. I'm learning. I'm learning how to kick and the defense is to kicking. So I'm not going in there and just saying, hey, I got these great boxing skills. I'm going to whoop y'all. It's like, look, I'm coming in here prepared for whatever. And that's a mental thing there to know, like, look, you can get knocked out, like you said, elbows, knees, chokes. So I'm going to be weary of all of that. But just knowing that I also know how to do those same things. It's kind of different when you go into the cage with somebody and all you have is your one and your two. You're at a huge disadvantage. I'm putting myself at a great advantage because I'm digging into everything that I don't know. And I'm really getting strong in those. I'm actually getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. So I'm actually not scared of being on my back no more. You know, I'm not scared of getting put, uh, getting put in the chokehold. They showed me how to stay calm and work my way out of it. I mean, but you actually got to get down there and actually do it. Cause people say that MMA looks more violent than boxing, but honestly it's a sweet science to it. And you really wouldn't understand it until you did the actual training. Gotcha. Um, you know, I, I always think that anybody who boxes, regardless of record, um, it's pretty courageous to get in the ring knowing that, you know, you might get your ass whipped and you might get hit and all of that. Um, you've been fighting a long time and I don't just mean professionally or as an amateur, um, but just in, in how you grew up. Um, I, I think I read something where I think, you know, you had your I forgot what age you were when you had your first fight. But I'm wondering how you overcame the idea of, of getting hit, because it feels like that's a big part of it. It's like you got to be able to take a blow. Right. So how did you overcome this? The first time I sparred, I actually got hit in the face with a right hand at first. It wasn't a jab. It was a right hand. I hit the nose and my eyes watered. And after my eyes watered, I just went to work. You know, I was throwing the one, two as hard as I could. And um, that's what kind of got me over it. it was like uh, you have to learn like, hey, people are going to hit you. But long as you hit them back, it makes you feel better. That's kind of what I learned in boxing. So I wasn't worried about getting hit because I had seen so many other guys spar and get and get hit. But I didn't know what it what it felt like until I actually got hit. And now after all these years, it's just like a punch is a punch. And somebody hit me once. I'm going to set them up and get them back with three of those hard punches. So. It's, it's it's not really something that I uh, think about, but it was, you know, 
it did hurt me pretty bad when I got hit the first time. It's like my nose watered, my eyes got my eyes got watery, and I was like, it also brought attention to my anger issues <laughs> that I also had had at that age. And uh, boxing taught me how to control them. You know, at that first, the first couple times I spar, I got hit with a with a few more big shots. And when I got hit with a hard shot, I always thought to myself. Don't be hitting me like that. So I always hit people back and it made me feel better when I would get my leg back. But I learned how to control my anger more because somebody hit you with a big shot, sometimes it'll wobble you. So you can't go all crazy or else you'll get knocked out. So I, I had learned that growing up, especially sparring against the guys. You're like, you know what? Keep, keep, keep your composure. We're going to get that leg back right here in a minute because he dropped his hand every time he throw that jab. So we're going to line it up with that jab just in a few seconds here. But we got to make sure we got our legs first, right? So it, it, it's really a thinking game, you know? And uh, and I had to think a lot more because uh, I wasn't stronger than the guys at my gym. Was I faster? I was I was blessed with speed, thank God. But I definitely wasn't, um, I wasn't stronger and I wasn't more experienced at the time. So growing up, I'm sparring against guys who've been in the gym 10 plus years and I've only been in the gym four years, you know? So like I had to learn certain things and pick up on certain things and, you know, keep being, being taught. But the experience came from boxing against them. Those guys who had already had a hundred fights and I only had, you know, 10 fights. I'm sparring against guys who got a hundred fights and only got 10 fights, you know? So, so that helped you know, build my confidence and also give me the experience that I needed to actually be ready for the Olympics at the age of 17. I mean, you spar against men um, all the time. And I noticed, because I noticed this with a lot of uh, my friends who play in the WNBA or just play basketball, period. And it's always some dude that's on the couch that ain't did shit in years that want to tell a, a woman that they can beat him, that they can like, I'll post you up. It's like, bro, you can't even make it from your couch to the refrigerator, but you could post somebody up. So I'm just yeah. going to assume that there is probably mostly on social media, because I doubt anybody could, would say this to your face, that you have a contingent of men who actually think that they can beat you, right? In a fight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, how do you respond to... Uh, those dudes who don't know how to fight or are only used to street fighting and they don't understand like that street fight ain't what you, it's not the same as boxing somebody who does it for real. Like you'll get your ass whooped like a lot, you know? Well, I just got like that demeanor that say like, don't F with me. Right. So people on social media will try that and they'll, oh, I'll do this and I'll, and, and I'll do that. And uh, I always tell people like, trust me, you not want to try me because I'm because I'm really the girl who who can really spar you though you know up from the from the weight classes to 140 to 200 pounds I can get in there with you and give you some great work you know like some of that work to where you go home and you be looking at your girl like look you can't take no boxing classes because you may get good like her right so I'm really like that and I always train I'm always in shape so I don't really get that in person but online or up on social media I, I i don't get that i that i uh can't fight i get stuff like oh you're not the greatest woman of all time this other person is but you're second to that person or or i get you know why do you call yourself the quote when uh when this person has more fights than you are and stuff like that but nobody writes me and say you like you know you can't even box and i can beat you in a boxing match like I barely get messages like that because stuff like that irritate me. And I'd be like, you know what? You go ahead and send your address and we can go ahead and, 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 and I can go ahead and show you that. Turn your location home. about that? Yeah, if I can't so, <laughs> right. But for somebody to say that I said I can't fight, like the records speak for them, speak for themselves. I'm, I'm a nine time world champion, two time Olympic champ. And you don't just get there by looking good. I know I look good, but you don't get there just by looking good. You got to fight. You got to know know how to fight and beat girls who are 6'2 and you only 5'8. You know, girls who are 32 years of age and you're 17. Like, that takes a lot. So, I don't even let that kind of stuff get to me because I just know it's not true. Was confidence um, and your self-esteem something that was an evolution or have you always been this way? I know that was evolution. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I, got, I got bullied in school, uh, first and second grade third grade I started fighting people started speaking up for myself and then and then I and then I started boxing fifth grade so I already was fighting before I started boxing but I wasn't boxing right 
it seemed like just boxing though. At first I was super quiet. I really wanted to talk much, but, but like when you're in a gym full of guys, they can press you to that, to that point to where you like, I really don't want to say, say, say nothing to you. But since you keep picking with me, I got to say something. So that's where I learned a lot of my trash talk from, to be honest. Like when I be trash talking with those girls, sometimes I, I don't even be trying to, but it, but it, but if they say something, I'd be like, oh, I'm about to get her. And I just, oh, I know you ain't talking, <laughs> you know? So um, that's where a, lot, a, a whole lot of my trash talk comes from. But um, it definitely was a building process as I got, as I got stronger as I got better skill, as I got, um, I mean, it just seemed like the, like God would just put me in this great position to be, to be great. It just seemed like, um, my, the better my boxing skills got, the, it's like, it's like the more confidence, uh, that I had, the more confidence I had in my looks, confidence I had in the way I talked, you know, confidence I had in what I take and what I didn't take. And I just became a person who was like huge on like, don't disrespect me. Like, that's my big thing. Like, don't ever disrespect me. Like, I'm like huge on respect. Like, I'm, I'm a very, I'm a very respectful person. But when I get disrespected, it just do something to my skin. It makes my skin crawl. And I'm like, don't disrespect me. Like, that's when I go into my dark mode. And it's like, you know what? I'm in the ring, outside the ring. So I don't even be around disrespectful people. Like that's how big I'm up on respect. Like respect is respect is given as it is earned. Like do not play with me. So just that was my attitude kind of going up in the gym. Like I've always just kind of had that confidence, like don't mess with me, but the confidence of, of, of like being a great fighter and speaking of it really came from, like I said, being in my gym. And having role models like Muhammad Ali, he made it okay to say you're the greatest of all time, to say you black and you pretty when everybody else was calling you black and ugly. Like he made it okay. And he called himself the GOAT before anybody ever called him the GOAT. He felt it in his heart. And then he spoke it. And people went in, you know, when he spoke, people and people were like, what is he doing? What are you talking about? And that's what I get. People say to me, the greatest one of all time, what is she doing? What is she talking about? And it was like, I am though. Who can beat me? Nobody. <laughs> and uh, that's on facts, as they say. Um, so uh, you know, you've been very open, um, not just with the documentary, but just in a lot of interviews you've given, talking about some of the things that you survived, being um, a survivor of sexual abuse, and the way you grew up. What made you decide to be so open about some deeply personal things? What were you hoping to accomplish with that? I mean, well, honestly, you know, having to keep something a secret for so many years, it starts weighing on you. You know, you feel like you holding this big secret and you just want to let it out. And at, and and my reason for not speaking about it at a young age was because I didn't want to be looked at as a victim. Right. I didn't want people to look at me like, oh, she got she got raped when she was five years old. Oh, she's a oh, we just feel so sad for her. I don't, I don't want nobody feeling sorry for me. So that's why I didn't speak about it. But after I had went to this college tour and I seen this one girl speak about how her mom had sold her for drugs and stuff. And to just hear her up to talking about it, I just was like, man, she is brave. You know, because I always thought that from when I was younger, when I first told my mother what happened to me when I was five or, or my grandmother reiterated to my mother, um, at the time, from my understanding, was that my mother didn't believe me. Right. She wouldn't believe that her boyfriend at the time that he would do that. So throughout my whole entire childhood, even from the time five through 17, we never talked about it. And so I always felt like I don't even want to go around and tell people because what if they don't believe me? Because my own mama didn't, you know, believe me from my understanding. But when, but when we talked about it when I was 17, because I did start being vocal about it and and, and I started being vocal because. I wanted girls to know that it wasn't their fault and that we're not victims. And, and, and you give your uh, attacker power when you walk around and say, Oh, I'm, I'm this way because this guy raped me or, or like I didn't make it in life or I'm just so angry or I'm just so 
whatever because of this person. You give them power over you. And so that's why I started speaking about it because I was angry about that as a, a kid. And, and I really didn't like boys looking at me a certain way. I didn't like grown men in general. Like you're over the age of 16. I only want you looking at me, talking to me, you know? So growing up and having just that attitude towards men and that attitude toward myself as like, am I a victim? You know, because I, because I don't want to talk about it or am I a survivor? So when I understood to myself, like you're a survivor and you should tell your story because it can help somebody else tell their story. And it can, you know, just having to hold that secret, man, it will like, it just started weighing so much on me. Like it was like this dark secret. I had to keep a secret and I didn't want to tell nobody. And I was so ashamed of it. And when I realized like, I have no reason to be ashamed. I didn't do it. It was done to me. And I'm a survivor. I'm a conqueror. And it must make that guy feel like shit who did that because his, because his goal was to break me. At the age of five years old, he tried to break me, tried to destroy me. And guess what? It didn't work. Hmm. That's quite a testimony. Um, you know, as you uh, look at how inspirational that your your story has been, particularly for other women, and especially after you revealed, um, you know, that, do you think um, that in many ways has made you very equipped to handle kind of the fame and all these other things that you, you handle you know, now, cause you handle it so well. I mean, that this is just outside looking in. Obviously I don't know you, but you seem to handle all of this like incredibly well for somebody who's still in their mid twenties because you have been through so much in your life. Do you think this has all kind of prepared you to handle this moment that you're in right now? Well, I've always had to be a leader in my family. I always had to protect my younger sister and my younger brother. I have a brother that's four years older than me and we always had to fight with him when he's fighting against guys and stuff. So I think all that kind of prepared me to be this person that I am just to have that mental strength and have that, um, just to have that mind to not panic. It's not really many situations that I panic in. Like, like you never see me like just, Oh, I don't know what to do. Or we don't, it's always like, okay, something's happening. Be calm, figure out what to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't really get like frantic. I don't know why. And I think it's weird sometimes because it's like, dude, have some emotion, but then it's like, uh, no, nah, I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on a lighter note, um, so I understand you have quite the friendship with Joe Biden, our new president. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so funny. People are crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I saw the picture of you two. I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> so people are like, they say like, oh, he smells hair and he's, he holds hands and all this crazy stuff. But I would like to explain that picture as I've done so many times over these last few months. Yeah. I had met Joe Biden. We had been talking. He's the vice president. So, of course, I'm like, oh, my God, the vice president. And we had plenty of great talks. He gave me a coin and everything. I didn't know that I was supposed to be going on stage to talk with him. I just knew I was there in my suit and I was meeting the vice president. That's what I knew. But he got ready to go on stage. And I was like, all right, Joe, go out there and kill it. You know, go. And he was like, you're coming with me. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm not going out there in front of that crowd. They like, like they had signs. They were chanting stuff. I'm like, we're going out there. So he's like, yeah. So that's when he grabbed my hand and they, and that's where they got the picture of him holding my hand. I was walking to the stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. That's really surprising to hear that because you're, you do, you know, you're often in front of big crowds. Um, and in fact that, you know, uh, I know this probably got to be weird because with your pay-per-view fight, um, I assume there there won't be a crowd there. Will there be any fans there? I have no idea. I think we have a limited, a limited amount, a limited amount of crowd. Right. Yeah, but I don't know when they're going to announce that. So right now, everybody who wants to tune into the fight, www.fitetv.com, twenty nine ninety nine pay per view fight March fifth. It's on. <laughs> now this is your first pay per view fight. Um, does that change your approach at all in terms of like how you market the fight and and get into it? I'll post a flyer every now and then, or I'm getting very active on my YouTube channel. Um, just stuff like that. But my main job is to win a fight. You know, like, like this is the fight to where this is my coming out party to where, like, I think every fight after this should be pay per view, right? So we have to do great numbers, and I just have to have a great fight. Let me tell my line. 
Um, before I, I, I let you go, there is a, uh, a game I like to play with all my guests. And you actually are a little different because I've seen you play a version of this game before. <laughs> and so this is almost too easy for you. <laughs> um, the game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. You pick one. I saw you do incredibly well at this game when I think you were on the zone, right? And so uh, with the two hosts that you guys did a, a, like a this or that, you pick one or the other. I hope to make the questions t- tougher than they did on you, all right? Because you just breeze through it, all right? All right, I'm nervous. I hate playing these games. <laughs> I know, but you did so well. So, oh, well, it just has to be. i great at everything. That's you, what it is. That is true. <laughs> I look, listen, I, let me. I'm I'm drafting some of your confidence right now, uh, Clarissa, for sure. Um, the more influential fighter, Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. Mm. Would you rather win? I know you can't because obviously you're a professional. But would you rather have another gold medal or MMA title? MMA title. Because mm, I know the Olympics meant a lot to you, winning both of those. Because um, you almost, at least this is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you you thought about going for a third, correct? Yeah, I did. But they didn't want to pay me enough money, so I'm like, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Und- uh, understood. Uh, and uh, who would be the tougher opponent for you? Um, Amanda Nunez or Jake Paul? <laughs> Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I got to get your opinion of this. Like when you saw Nate Robinson fight Jake Paul as a, a professional, what did you think about that? First of all, I was like, what is he doing? Like, this is embarrassing the culture. Like, I was so mad. Like, and I also felt bad because it's like, you know, Nate Robinson is a brother. You know what I mean? So it's like, where was the other brothers at to help him get prepared for this fight? Like, I was just like, what am I watching? And it's so crazy. I just seen Jake Paul at the gym today down here up in uh, Florida. He, he works out with my strength and conditioning coach. But, okay, I'm not blaming Nate Robinson. Like, I'm I'm blaming his team. But it's like, where was the, like, love at? You know what I'm saying? Like, that was not supposed to happen. Where was the guidance? But it definitely made me want to whoop Jake Paul's ass, for sure. <laughs> well, I was they- like, you know what? Just... <laughs> Take out Big Bro and put little sis in there. I got it. You got it. I'll okay. show you what to do. And as Jake Paul said, because you you said this before publicly, like I'll fight you, Jake Paul, if you're looking for some work. You know what I'm saying? Has he said anything to you at the gym? No, he didn't even look at me really. But I was like, all right, cool. I think he's probably a little intimidated because I'm a real fighter. So don't back up my tree. I keep my boxing bag on me. I'm ready. Anyway, don't nobody ever try to call me out. And I ain't got my stuff. Oh, I, oh, I'm strapped. <laughs> I'm ready. I got the mouthpiece and everything. Oh, man. uh, He ain't say nothing, though. (laughs) Uh, And finally, um, because I know you're a big Beyonce fan, um, Run the World Girls or Irreplaceable? Run the World Girls. (laughs) You're not no to the left, to the left. Nobody care about that. (laughs) Nobody care about that irreplaceable. Oh, you know, like, now hold on. I love all Beyonce songs, but I don't know. We run the world. Like, like that's an empowerment song. Like, to live is like, oh, you're breaking up, you're putting them out, you're moving on. It's like, we do that all the time. I mean, that's we need em- to run the world. That's empowering in itself when you put out somebody who needs to be put out. But <laughs> I hear you, you're right. Yeah. We need to run the world overall. And you know what? And, and uh, when you, so you said who's more influential. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about that. You said, you said Mike Tyson or Floyd Mayweather. Yep. And what I will say is Mike Tyson because he's legendary, right? Right. But I, w- I want to say Floyd because... He showed boxers that you can go off on your own and actually make the money you're supposed to make. Right. It's the business side of it. And he has made 50 million for a fight. Right. And uh, made a whole lot of money for fighting. And no other boxer in history has made the kind of money that Floyd Mayweather has made in boxing. So I would say um, as far as in the business aspect, I got to go with Floyd. But as far as an legendary boxer, knocking people out, Mike Tyson. Hmm. Yeah, no, because Floyd provided an entirely new business model that people hadn't seen before. And, uh, you know, the fact that he was uh, able to get some more more juice out of that whole Conor McGregor thing. I was like, wow, I'm I'm (laughs) 
I'm impressed. I'm not even mad. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, well, listen, it's no question you run the world right now, Clarissa. And I know there's only more things that are coming your way. Like you said, you barely scratching the surface. But good God, you're only 25 years old. It's already amazing to think about the fact that you've been doing it as long as you have, you know, because, um, you know, you've been sparring since you were 11 years old. So just think about how many years you're already in the game. Technically, you a vet. <laughs> okay. Right. Really? You really are. You know, and even though you haven't even quite hit your prime, but yeah, good luck in the fight. Not that you'll need it. Um, I think there's an expected outcome, but uh, just glad to see you back in the ring and, and glad to see you thriving, sis. And I can't wait for the big movie and for everybody to really learn about your story. So congratulations and good luck with everything going forward. Yeah, thank you. All right. Clarissa's getting out of here. Um, and y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fucking I'm bothered. As many of you are aware, there was a dire situation in Texas recently. A winter storm just annihilated the state with historic freezing temperatures, causing millions to lose power and water. People died from the freezing cold after being trapped in their homes without heat. I read a horrible story about a mother and a daughter that died of carbon monoxide poisoning because the car was left running in the garage so that they could generate some heat. And some people also were setting their possessions on fire just to stay warm. Just truly awful shit. And already experts are predicting that the financial damage from the winter storms could rival the damage done by Hurricane Harvey in 2017, which resulted in $19 billion in losses. Now, during such a traumatic and perilous time, the expectation is that leadership will do whatever is possible to help, especially those who have certain resources. For example, Beto O'Rourke, who ran for senator in Texas and recently ran for president, he made 900,000 wellness calls and delivered food and water to seniors with the help of his staff and, of course, an army of volunteers. See, there are two kinds of leaders in this world. There are people like Beto O'Rourke, who find a way to be of service. And then there's people like Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who, when the going gets tough, they go to Cancun. While millions of his constituents were in dire straits, and in some cases, that included not having any food. Ted Cruz was flying to Cancun with his family because, as he put it, he was just trying to be a good dad. And I'm not even being funny. That's what he actually said. Now, while fuck it, I'm bothered in general by Ted Cruz's overall presence in government and by the fact that Texans voted for a clown. I'm really fucking bothered that Ted Cruz had the audacity to call the police, ask for a detail to escort him and his family to the airport, hopped his simple ass on a flight to Mexico, and did so with the calmness and thoughtlessness of somebody who gave less than half a fuck about his constituents. It takes nerve, gall, a complete lack of self-awareness to be as shitty of a person as Ted Cruz seems to be. To quote that great philosopher Ron Burgundy, I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. Ted Cruz didn't even bother to hide what he was doing, which is why the social media detectives had such a detailed account of his journey before he even released a statement about it. Before Ted Cruz could board his flight, we saw pictures of Ted Cruz in the American Airlines lounge. We saw pictures of him in line to board his flight. People so petty. Somebody even took a picture of Ted Cruz's name on the upgrade list. Bullshit you not. Basically, by the time Ted Cruz got to Mexico, the only picture we didn't have was him getting his hair braided on the beach. Now, the people who are defending Cruz, and good God, what a stupid ass hill to die on that is, say, well, what was he supposed to do? And if you could, wouldn't you have wanted to get your family out of Texas too? Again, Beto O'Rourke, not the senator. And he found a way to be useful. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who Cruz loves to villainize and get into stupid ass Twitter battles with, by the way, he loses those battles pretty much all the time. She has raised over $5 million for Texans. She's in New York. Ted Cruz is a United States senator. He ain't talking about some janitor. Not talking about somebody just on a school board. He is a senator. And yeah, I would have wanted to get my family out of Texas too, but I'm also not an elected official. The people haven't entrusted me with taking care of them or to be their public servant. 
When the people of Texas voted for Cruz, they did so with the expectation he would actually look out for their best interests. But when the shit hit the fan, he went to Economy Plus. And then he had the nerve to blame it on his daughters. In his initial public statement, here's what Cruz said. With school canceled for the next week, our girls asked to take a trip with friends. Wanting to be a good dad, I flew down with them last night and am flying back this afternoon. Ted Cruz tried to make it seem like he was just escorting his family down there. But that's the thing about receipts. They expose the truth. And in this Internet age, you can best believe people got receipts. And sure enough, it was reported that Cruz's return flight was booked five days after he left. So him trying to act like he was just running his daughters to the store right quick and then coming back is some bullshit. This motherfucker really tried to make it sound like he was dropping his daughters off at soccer practice and then that was it. Unfortunately. You get what you elect. And once Ted Cruz didn't square up on Donald Trump after Trump basically called Cruz's wife ugly and then suggested his father was somehow involved in John F. Kennedy's assassination, the people of Texas should have known they were not voting for a ride or die. But a book it and bounce. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent, Rich Burner is our technical director, and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, supervising producer is Jifa Yador, and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Peep Bowl Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. <laughs>